You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Come, Holy Spirit, come like a fire and burn. Come like a wind and cleanse. Convict, convert, and consecrate our lives to your great glory. Amen. Well, I must say, I'm going to fuss a little bit about having my favorite verse omitted, so I'm going to read it. (laughs) Actually, I I should have used this as my opening prayer. Just as I am, poor, wretched, blind, sight, riches, healing of the mind, all I need in thee to find, O Lamb of God. I come. I have had a great week here because of the kindness and the friendliness and the support of this congregation and the staff. I have been struggling all week because as soon as I leave here, I go back to New York And I have one day before I am to preach seven sermons in three hours on Good Friday in New York City. And um, I admit that I have been laboring under some degree of pressure, and everyone has been extremely kind. And I ask one more kindness, and that is for you to understand that I will not be able to to, um, stay at the back of the church after this service. I'm going to go very quickly to lunch where some people have a table waiting for me and eat about three bites of a chicken salad sandwich and then go back to the hotel to get ready to go to the airport. I'm so sorry that I have to do that, but that is, you understand that that is why I have to leave without standing at the door. Now, as we have been saying, not just me, but Mark Giniat, it's hard to pronounce his name, um, have been stressing uh, since Palm Sunday, each of the four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each one has his own particular way of framing the story of Jesus' passion. Each one wants to tell us in the most convincing way possible that the crucifixion of the Son of God is the most important thing that has ever happened and that it reveals the true and complete destiny of humanity and of creation. And so in this pause here in this sanctuary, we come together to think about this task that they undertook, collecting the living memories of Jesus into a form 
worthy of its unique subject. Any four people composing a long narrative will have four different ways of putting it across, what to emphasize, what to leave out, how to bring it to a conclusion. That's the preacher's task, too. I find the part about what to leave out particularly difficult. In any case, it's obvious that each of the four evangelists have done, has done his work painstakingly in order to convey in the most arresting terms the profound world-overthrowing significance of the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. An execution by a method so vile that it was considered an offense to good manners even to mention it in polite Roman society. That's a fact. It was one of the ways that the Romans devised for the instruction and the entertainment of its citizens. Researching the Roman Empire and its cruelties, I came across this from a book about the procedures in the Colosseum and the other Roman arenas. The satisfaction and relief that Romans would, have fe would feel watching someone considered lower than themselves be thrown to the beasts would become a central facet of the experience of the Roman games, a feeling of shared empowerment and validation. That should be very sobering to us. And as I was reading it, it occurred to me that Roman citizens were never crucified. If you were a Roman citizen like Paul, you would go and have your head neatly sliced off somewhere. You would not have to undergo the punishment of being displayed in public like an animal or worse. Citizenship would protect you from that. Crucifixion was specifically designed to evoke the worst sort of sadistic pleasure in the spectators, capitalizing on human delight in watching someone lower than themselves die horribly. It was the utmost in dehumanizing a human being. The accounts of Mark and Matthew, although they differ from each other in ways that greatly enrich us, have one crucial feature in common, and we talked about this yesterday. Both of them have only one saying, and it's the same one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As we saw yesterday, it is the cry of dereliction, more like a shriek than a cry, a shriek of utmost abandonment. On the cross, Jesus the Messiah experienced hell, the absence of God, the ultimate judgment. And in so doing, he appeared to suffer ultimate defeat at the hands of the evil one, the demonic usurper, the power set against God and all that God created. 
both Mark and Matthew shape their passion narratives to highlight this one saying. They want us to know that there is no hell that Jesus has not entered, no demon that he has not confronted, no abandonment or despair that he has not felt. He experienced the great nihilistic swallowing up of all goodness. The resurrection on Easter Day means nothing if it does not mean this, the conquest of nothingness, the victory over ultimate, complete, and final darkness and obliteration. Mark and Matthew emphasize this aspect of the passion narrative. The Gospel of John tells the same story in a different way. We need to pay attention, I think, to each of the Gospels separately in order fully to understand what they want us to know. I have not been able to give due justice to Luke while I have been here. I have concentrated on Mark, Matthew, and now John. Saint uh, John's Good Friday narrative incorporates three different sayings that were treasured by John and his community. John ends his passion story with these words of Jesus. It is finished. It is finished. Now, I'm sure I'm not the only person who always used to think that this meant it's over, it's the end. Certainly that is what I thought when I was a young person hearing the story. But I soon came to understand that the saying, it is finished, means infinitely more than it's over. The root word in Greek, which I will mention a few more times, is telos, T-E-L-O-S, telos. It means end. And knowing that it means end suggests that Jesus was saying it's all over. It's come to an end. But that is not at all what the word telos means in John. John emphasizes all through his gospel that Jesus is never a passive victim. He is not on the cross by mistake. He was not, as we often say, he was not just in the wrong place at the wrong time. The crucifixion is not just an unfortunate thing that happened to Jesus on the way to the resurrection. It is not a momentary blip on the arc of his ascent to the Father. John tells us otherwise. It is on the cross that the work of Jesus is carried through to its completion. What then is the resurrection? It is precisely the vindication of the crucified one. The resurrection doesn't cancel out the cross as if it was just a passing episode to be noted briefly or not noted at all on the way to Easter. 
You today are blessed because you know or you sense that it is this holy week that holds the key to it all. You know or you have suspected that Good Friday is not optional. You understand or you are on the way to understanding that the day of resurrection finds its meaning precisely from the cross. The resurrection does not correct the crucifixion as though it had been a mistake. The, mis the resurrection does not complete the crucifixion. The resurrection vindicates the crucifixion. Vindicate means to verify, to confirm, to authenticate. The work of Jesus is completed on the cross. That's what it is finished means. The Father and the Son together in the power of the Spirit are saying to us on the day of resurrection, see here, this is the proof for those who believe that everything was accomplished on the cross in the self-offering of Jesus. And now the Father has vindicated the Son. The work that the Father gave the Son to accomplish is consummated, completed, finished. One word in Greek, tetelestai, from telos. It is completed. In Latin, it's particularly wonderful. Consummatum est. It is consummated. Now, if we go back two verses in John's Passion narrative, just two verses, we read that directly after Jesus brings his new communi community into being with the words, Woman, behold your son. I wish I had time to go into that. I'll do that on Friday. Jesus brings his new community into being. It's not just taking care of his mother. It's giving his mother and the beloved disciple, disciple to each other. He doesn't call her mother. He calls her woman. Not so much his mother. She is his disciple. He is giving his two disciples to each other. It's the formation of the Christian community. As soon as he does that, John indicates that his work is completed. And he says... Immediately after this, Jesus knew that all was now finished to Telestai. Same word twice in two verses. That is very emphatic. There are many threads in John's gospel that are being woven together here in the word to Telestai, finished. The final complete work of Christ is brought to its consummation. He has fulfilled the scripture. To all who receive him, he has given power to become children of God. He has offered himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world.
And he does this in full knowledge of his true enemy. Let me explain. Charles Spurgeon, the towering 19th century preacher, adds to our understanding of Christ's life as a battle with the demonic powers under the command of the ruler of this world. That's what Jesus calls Satan in the Gospel of John, the ruler of this world. The forces of Satan have only one purpose. They exist to destroy the work of God. They exist specifically to destroy the mission of the Son of God. Spurgeon evokes a breathtaking image of Jesus on the cross as a great champion in a mighty contest with Satan. This is exactly what Jesus himself says at the turning point of John's Gospel. He says, My hour has now come. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all humanity to myself. And John the Evangelist adds, He said this to show by what death he was to die. You see, he knows what he has come to accomplish. He will create a new humanity. And to do so, he must engage and dislodge the enemy in battle. And he will do this precisely on the cross. That is John's whole point. He will accomplish his work as the sacrificial lamb of God. Twice in the first chapter of John, Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How and when will he do this? On the cross. In John's Gospel, Jesus prepares his disciples for all of this at the Last Supper. We read, When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, to the telos. He loved them, he loves us, to the end. Not so much to the end of our lives, but to the end and to the completion of his own work on the cross of shame and disgrace. After the meal is finished in the upper room and Judas has departed to do his treacherous deed, Jesus says to the disciples who remain, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. 
He has no power over me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go hence. To the garden, to the agony in the garden, to the betrayal, to the arrest, to the trial, and to crucifixion. In these events, the ruler of this world is coming. This is what the Father has commanded Jesus. But we are to understand, as Jesus himself says earlier, I and the Father are one. The Father and the Son are acting with a single will to enter into the final battle with the evil one. The battle takes place on the cross. Jesus places himself in the direct path of the ruler of this world. And on the cross, he is the victor. He passes his laurels to the new community gathered at the foot of the cross. Like a champion having overcome his foes in the final match, he asks for water. And having received it, he shouts, It is finished. It is completed. It is consummated. Now, none of this, nothing of what we have said, sung, and heard would make any sense whatsoever unless Jesus Christ is who the Scripture says he is. And the ancient creeds and confessions, who they say he is, unless we understand him to be truly the only begotten Son of God. I am wasting my breath and you are wasting your time. Here are Jesus' own words in the Gospel. He is speaking to the questioning disciple Philip. Philip has said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus says, Have I been with you so long? And yet you do not know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? I and the Father are one. And this is eternal life that they know the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent. I have often ended my sermon series in many places 
with the words at the end of John's Gospel. There, there was one other chapter added on, but the end of John's Gospel really says everything. It says everything not only for, for John, but for Mark and for Matthew and for Luke and for Paul, for Peter, all of whom wrote of the great signs and wonders that Jesus performed and the words that he said. These are John's final words in his gospel, and these are my parting words today. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book or preached in this pulpit today. But these are written, and this preaching is offered in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ of God and that in believing you may have life in his name. May it be so. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.